0: On this edition of FedGov Today with Francis Rose, building resilience against cyber shocks for government and risk management treatment plans at the TSP. It's Thursday, April 27, 2023. Welcome to FedGov Today with Francis Rose. This Sunday, getting ready for the debut of the Fed Gov Today television show. Rolls out 1030 Sunday morning on ABC7 in Washington, D.C. My guests on that show include the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, and the Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, Danny Werfel. Next Sunday's show, May 7th, features coverage from TechNet Cyber in Baltimore next week, including Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, the director of DISA. If you miss any episodes of the TV show or the podcast, you can always find them on demand at fedgovtoday.com. The National Cybersecurity Strategy is part of the Biden administration's preparation for cyber attacks against the federal government and the private sector. A former federal CIO calls those events cyber shocks. Tony Scott is chief executive officer of intrusion. He's former chief information officer of the United States. He's writing about cyber shocks for the IBM Center for the Business of Government and the National Academy of Public Administration. Tony, welcome. It's great to see you again. You write about resilience in this, and I wonder, is there a common definition of cyber resilience that people in the private sector and public sector agree on? Welcome, Tony.
1: Well, good to see you, Francis. Um, Unfortunately, no, in my opinion. Um, But, you know, in this particular case, it all started with a conversation around you know, what could that really mean? And what are some of the issues? um, uh, Because there was kind of broad recognition that, you know, we've built cyber defenses up over, you know, several decades, and and yet they fail or or can fail. And, you know, how long would it take to recover um, from some of these, you know, sort of bigger disasters that either have happened or you know will happen in the, in the future. So I, I think it was timely, if maybe not way overdue, Uh, in terms of having that conversation
0: you lead off this work with a couple of really stunning statistics during the last half of 2022 the number of cyber attacks targeting governments increased by 95 percent worldwide compared to the same period in 21 and the cost of public sector data breaches also increased 7.25 percent between march 21 and march 22 an average cost per incident of 2.07 million dollars That's a really terrible trajectory for the folks that are trying to defend against these attacks, it sounds like.
1: It it really is. And what it is, I think, is a sign that, you know, the bad guys um, will seek any uh, open opportunity, you know, to do the things that they do. And we've seen this trend overall, not just attacking uh, the public sector, but. It's moved downstream a little bit, even in the private sector, to smaller businesses, small, medium-sized businesses, who, like a lot of public sector, just don't have the resources to defend against some of these, uh, you know, more, um, uh, you know, well-organized uh, and well-funded attacks.
0: You're proposing four steps to uh, prepare governments for future cyber shocks. The first is increasing the cyber talent resource base. A lot has been spoken and written about that idea over the last two years, especially, but five to 10 years generally. Um, What is going well in that area, and what do you think is really lacking in that area, Tony?
1: I think there's two things that come to mind, and these were broadly discussed Um, you know, at the forums that we held. Um, uh, The first one is, I think there's been this misconception that you need to have a four-year college degree in computer science to be an effective cybersecurity uh, person. And the reality is, you know, we need people who come from all kinds of disciplines um, and not all of those require a four-year college degree even. Um, But, To the extent that the world has digitized everything that we do, um, you need people with backgrounds in art and humanities and law and healthcare. And, uh, you know, you pick the area of human existence, and we need people with skills in those areas, Uh, law enforcement. I mean, you know, the list could go on and on and on. And then who also can either be trained or have some cybersecurity skills. Um, And so I I think the main thrust of the argument here is let's widen the aperture. Let's embrace people from a much broader uh, set of backgrounds and then do some things to bring the appropriate level of cyber skills together with those other backgrounds.
0: The organization that it strikes me is doing the best job of demonstrating that is the military. I had the commander of Coast Guard Cyber Command on the show yesterday, Rear Admiral Jay Van. He's talking about taking recruits out of high school and basically rolling his own cyber talent. And it's certainly not him four years because the military services don't have four years to operationalize those people.
1: No, that's right. And I think that's a great example of, you know, more innovative thinking that, um, that needs to take place i mean it's still the case and you know this well that it's a asymmetric problem at this particular point the the cost to defend is still way more expensive than the cost to uh, mount an attack and and one of the ways we'll fix that is with a you know a broader set of skills that can help uh, attack those problems
0: the second step that you write about, Tony, I confess, I rolled my eyes when I read it, not because you wrote it and not because you had to say it, you had to say it, but because kind of here we go again, we've been talking about this one for 142 years, it seems like improving organizational collaboration for faster response. We're still siloed really badly, aren't we, Tony?
1: Yeah. And <laughs> it's probably, a you know, an issue that's going to persist forever, but, um, you know, I think the idea here is, you know, sometimes it takes 10 tries. Sometimes it takes 20 tries. Sometimes it takes a hundred tries, but if you keep hammering away, maybe you'll make some progress. And we do see some progress in some areas. Um, uh, And so, you know, I'm going to keep hammering home the point and, and I think others will um, as well. And I think more than anything, we need to you know, shout from the rooftops when there's, you know, good collaboration and we have great examples of, you know, folks who've done that and who've been successful. And, uh, and so, you know, it, it is a tireless cause I'll, I'll admit, but it is, it's absolutely necessary and, and one that, you know, pays benefits if we get it right.
0: All right. Step three is aligning public and private sector cybersecurity priorities where are they the most misaligned right now, in your view, Tony?
1: Well, I, I don't know if they're even so much misaligned as they are maybe misunderstood or um, or scattered. Um, you know, I, I'm CEO of a public company now, um, and when I look at, and, and we're a cybersecurity company, so and I've got a fair amount of background in this space. But when I talk to fellow CEOs, I find there's a tremendous amount of confusion around where the resources are, what their responsibilities are, and what's a government responsibility. Um, There's some um, concern about, you know, should I report certain things to the government? uh, And what are the consequences of doing that? And and so I think there needs to be a lot more clarity, both in terms of policy, but also in terms of practice, in terms of the role of the private sector, the role of government. You know, it is one example I know you and I have talked about before, but you know, it's pretty clear uh, in the in the uh, analog world if somebody you know bombs a building or you know does some sort of kinetic activity. That results in harm, we know pretty well what our response is going to be. Um, and we know where the government's role is and what the private sector's role is. But in the case of a, you know, cyber attack, there's still a tremendous amount of confusion. You know, is the government going to help with that? Well, the answer is sometimes, sometimes not. And, um, and so, you just one example of where we need more clarification.
0: The fourth step that you write about is studying ways to bolster democratic institutions against cyber attacks. I note that you use the term democratic institutions and not just governments. I wonder what the difference is that you're getting after there, Tony.
1: Well, I think it all has to do with um, you know our principles of you know fostering democracy and free speech and. Um, you know, duly elected governments and and those kinds of things. Um, as you know, all kinds of tools can be used in ways for good, and they also can be used for not so good. And and I think that uh, in the current uh, world, lots of these digital tools are being used to spread um principles that are sort of against our values and our way of life and in trying to create confusion and misinformation and, and the like, and, uh, and, uh, and, and so I think the effort here is really to find a way of countering that, uh, even when it's not um, cyber activity, you know, for monetary gain, sometimes it's for other purposes. And equally worthy of spending time on figuring out how to defend against
0: you close this out by writing about building cyber resilience leaders for future readiness we talked about cyber talent at the beginning of this conversation what aspects what components what traits does a cyber leader need to have that the cyber rank and file folks maybe don't need or don't need as much of or whatever. Are those traits more along the lines of traditional leadership characteristics, Tony?
1: Well, I think they are. But, you know, the, the first ones that come to mind are a more strategic view of, you know, where we are and and what's possible going forward. Um, but also, you know, providing thought leadership in terms of, uh, you know, marshalling together and, Bringing together the right combination of resources to effectively deal with whatever the problem uh, happens to be in that in that particular case and I think the biggest role a leader has in that sense is developing other leaders you know it's making sure that um, you know there's a succession uh, plan and and that you're creating leadership at all kinds of different levels where it's needed uh, in whatever institution you're uh, participating in. So those are some of the things I would think of. And then one last one is just really great situational awareness. Um, You know, I think the, the right leaders demonstrate that all the time where they've got some sort of sixth sense going on about, um, you know, how to go address some of these problems and, and, uh, when to do it and how to do it and so on that, um, uh, not everybody has. So we need to seek out and, and reward those leaders who have those
0: capabilities. Tony, it's great to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for taking a break from RSA to talk to me today. Hey, it's good to see you. You can find a link to Tony's work in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of FedGov Today. I mentioned TechNet Cyber a moment ago. FedGov Today will be there at Afsia's flagship event. May 2nd through 4th, this coming Tuesday through Thursday in Baltimore. Cyber leaders from DISA, the DOD CIO office, and Cyber Command will explore, network, and plan for the whole of government effort to meet global cybersecurity challenges. You can learn more and register at event.afcea.org slash cyber 23 and on the events page at fedgovtoday.com. The Thrift Savings Plan has plans in place to analyze and treat potential risks to its operation and its participants. Kim Weavers, Director of External Affairs, Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is the TSP's approach to risk management as laid out at the board meeting this month? Welcome.
2: Thank you, Francis. Good to be here. Um, we have a fairly comprehensive review of our risks. We we do a risk assessment and then we do a risk profile, and then once we've we've looked at our enterprise risks, we we set out um, risk treatment plans, and um, then we we obviously make, monitor and report on how we're doing under those risk treatment parent plans. Excuse me, and then we rinse and repeat. Right? It's an annual calendar year cycle. Um, and we rep- report out to our board um, regularly, which is what happened at our board meeting in April, um, talking to them about our risk treatment plans and where where we are in that cycle.
0: There are 12 listed on the calendar year 23 enterprise risks. There are five of them that rate as medium high five that rate as uh, medium, and two that rate as medium low. Um, how did the TSP come to the uh, decision that these 12 were the ones that you needed to focus on the most, Kim?
2: Well, we have a enterprise risk group that works on it, which is basically our deputies from our, our various offices. Then we've got the office directors. Then we have the people in our enterprise risk office who are experts in um, identifying and monitoring. So that all gets put together and we work through a variety of, um, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that cybersecurity is going to be a risk, right? That's just, so there are some that are very obvious and then there are some that are a little bit more specific to us, like TSP fraud, right? That's going to be something. That is something that we have to worry about and and others wouldn't.
0: Yeah, the medium-high risks didn't strike me as anything too terribly surprising. Cybersecurity, supply chain risk management... Procurement; those are challenges for just about every federal agency. Um, as contract management is another medium-high. Reputational risk of TSP operations to customer experience was one that struck me as a uh, little unique. Kim, what's that mean? As, and and what exactly are you and your colleagues watching regarding that one?
2: So that I think was born out of our our conversion to Converge um, uh, last year, and. We take um, the participant experience and the fact that our participants are having a good experience with the TSP seriously. Um, And for some of our participants, that didn't happen. And so this risk is a way for us to develop a risk treatment plan, which has not yet been developed, um, and work toward making sure that we can mitigate those risks more. It's making sure we're thinking it through in a more holistic way than maybe we did previously.
0: What do those risk treatment plans look like for the other four that are not new risks, that are risks that you've been analyzing, working toward for a long time, Kim?
2: So I'm going to just pick one. Supply chain management, for example. We have done a number of things in terms of setting up an integrated risk management tool that takes in information about our vendors, that takes in um, information about risks to those vendors, um, the risks that would happen to us should one of our vendors go down. And the development of the integrated risk management tool, for example, was an item on that risk treatment plan. So the successful implementation of that is like check that's done, but that doesn't finish it because obviously if it's not done well, it doesn't do you any good. So there's a number of checks and balances in that to make sure that it's producing an outcome that allows us to look into the supply chain risk we've got.
0: Um, what does this look like from a long-term perspective? I note, as you've uh, said, and as I see on the slides, these are all uh, directed at calendar year 2023. Uh, and you talked about the fact that this is kind of uh, lather, rinse, repeat. Um, at what point do you start to think about where you are for 2024? Is it only focused on the calendar year? Or is there a part this year where you start thinking, okay, we're preparing to redo the, to do this cycle over again?
2: It's toward the end of this year where we look at how far we've come. And there there have been, uh, for example, cybersecurity, I don't think will ever fall off that list, right? I, I can't envision a time when that wouldn't be true. The human capital management, which is now medium-low, has been on the list several times. And now the risk treatment plans have mitigated it to where it's medium-low, And it will no longer be repeated to the board. So that's sort of the cycle we're in. As new things come up, we add new risks. Um, And as we mitigate other risks, we take them off the list.
0: That was going to be my question. Is, Is medium high the threshold for where you determine that you need to take these risk treatment plans?
2: Yes, medium high risk treatment plans get reported to the board. We do risk treatment plans for the other risks. It just doesn't rise to the level of getting re- reported to our board members.
0: All right. Um, you mentioned Converge a moment ago. Um, are there any updates on Converge, or is that continuing a pace as we've discussed in the past?
2: It's continuing a pace. Um, again, calls are being answered. Uh. Things are happening and we are gonna be in the process of, I believe, rolling out some new features. I'm teasing people now in the near future, but I don't have um I don't have specific times or dates.
0: That's great broadcasting on your part. Coming Thank soon at this. the TSP.
2: <laughs> exactly. Theater near you.
0: That's right. That's right. Kim Weaver of the Thrift Savings Plan. It's great to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank you. You can read more about the TSP in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. Fedgov Today is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. You can follow the show on any of those platforms so you don't miss the next episode of Fedgov Today with Francis Rose. It's coming next Tuesday. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening.